Well, good morning to all of you in the room and a special good morning to all of you at Quakertown. Our grand opening today and our reopening here at Calvary Church at Souderton. And this morning we are one church in two locations and that's something to get excited about. Will you join me in thanking God for what he's done? I received a text just before I came up here with a picture that said, Quakertown is essentially full, and that's the first service, and so we're grateful for what God has done and what he continues to do. So here's the question that we wrestled with. How do we have a grand opening since we haven't done one of those before for a site? So as we thought about it, we thought, well, when you meet someone, you kind of introduce yourself, right? They say, here's who I am, here's what I'm about, here's what's meaningful to me. And so we thought, boy, that would be a really neat way uh, to put a message together. Let's talk about who we are. And then we thought, you know, it's probably good for all of us to be reminded of what we're about and what those central things are because it's easy to forget. So what I'm going to do for the next 30 minutes or so, I'm going to introduce Calvary Church to you or reintroduce Calvary Church to you. And then we're going to ask you, since you all don't have time to talk, remember that, you all don't have time to talk in the next few minutes, we're going to ask you, before you leave today, introduce yourself to at least five other people. Now, if you look around, there are a bunch of people around you. Some of them know you. Most of them probably don't. So your assignment, before you leave campus today, you're going to be introduced or reintroduced to Calvary Church. You have the responsibility to introduce yourself to at least five people in your section before you leave, in the atrium, in the parking lot, five people before you leave. Well, one of the first things that you hear us say a lot at Calvary Church and everything that we do fits into goes something like this. We believe that the Bible is not just a story. We believe the Bible is God's story. Now, there are a number of parts to that. And I want you to kind of track with me for a second. First of all, we believe that the Bible is a story. Now, that doesn't mean it's a fairy tale. We believe it's a true story, but it's a story. Which means when you read the Bible, it's not like reading a newspaper. Remember those? You used to read them decades ago. A newspaper. It's not like reading a blog. So if you were to go to a news blog this morning, as I did, you would discover there are lots of stories, but they're all about different things. So the Democrats elected a new head. Trump said he's not going to go to the uh, reporter's dinner. There was a tragedy in New Orleans at the Mardi Gras thing. And the Phillies are now one and one, right? In spring training, one and one. They beat the Yankees, they got beat by them. Now, all those things are kind of disconnected things, right? The Bible's not like that, but a lot of people read the Bible like that. A lot of people read the Bible as if it was a blog. A lot of different topics on a lot of different issues. And how do they connect? Well, we don't know. Well, we believe the Bible's a story. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. It, you kind of move through the Bible and things grow organically as you go. But there's a second part to it. We believe that the Bible's not just a story. The Bible's God's story. And again, lots of people get tripped up over that. Lots of people, maybe some of you in the room here, or maybe some of you at Quakertown, if you do read the Bible or you hear the Bible, we often think of it as soft news. You know what soft news is? Soft news is infomercial news, right? They're selling you makeup. They're selling you a diet. They're selling you a get-rich plan. That's all soft news. If you follow the advice of the soft news, your life will be radically different. 
The Bible is primarily not soft news. The Bible's not a good thing to add to your life in order to make your life what you want. The Bible is essentially hard news. Here's what God did, here's what's going on, and here's what's going to happen. Hard news is, it's not going to be nearly as warm today as it was yesterday. That's hard news. So if you go out in a t-shirt and shorts today, you're going to get cold. That's hard news. The Bible's primarily hard news, not soft news. The Bible's not primarily news you can use, apply these few principles to your life, and all of a sudden you have a better life. The Bible's God's story. It's not our story. But often we read the Bible and we think, oh, this is primarily about me, right? And I'm in the middle, and how can I do this? And how can I have a better life? And how can I get my wife or husband to kind of love me more? And how can I get my kids to obey? You may get some of that advice in the Bible, but primarily the Bible is hard news, not soft news. The Bible's God's story about what God did, is doing, and will do. And you can believe it or not, but it is God's story of what he did, what he's doing, and what he will do. Now, a few years ago, we actually came up with some icons, some pictures to help you understand the six acts of the story. How many of you have ever seen that before? Good. How many of you have that app on your phone, by the way? Yeah, good. About six of you. Okay. All, all that time, energy, and money for that, right? Six people. Well, anyway, you can still download the app. It really is a helpful thing. You know, it may seem, seem like a silly little thing with silly pictures. We actually designed the pictures to look kind of silly because we wanted the pictures to resemble drawings that you could do. Maybe not all of you, but uh, they're simple drawings. But they explain the six acts of God's story, the beginning, the middle, and the end. So here are the six acts. In the beginning, God creates. That doesn't mean God was created. He has no beginning. But in the beginning, God made everything that exists, act one. And in that act, what do we find? There's community. Community, Father, Son, Spirit. And he creates human beings in his image to have community with him. So we now join the community, Father, Son, and Spirit, and we're in relationship with God. There's community between our first parents, right? Adam and Eve are in community together. Community. They also have a mission. You ever notice that? Our first ancestors were on a mission. They were on a mission to fill the world with image bearers of God, right? Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth with reflections of who God is by reproduction. They were also supposed to manage things and take care of the resources as they took care of things in the garden. In the beginning, there was community and there was mission. There was a partnership between God and human beings. That's act one. In case you haven't noticed, we don't live in that act anymore, right? I mean, things are kind of a mess. It's not community, there's disunity. Um, there's not love and care and protection. There's not partnership. All of that's been sabotaged and it's been sabotaged because of act two. In act two, God is rejected. Our first parents did what we also would have done and continue to do. God says, here's how I've made things, here's how I want you to live. We say, oh, heck with that, we're gonna go our way because we think we know a little better than you. God's rejected. Community is now destroyed, partnership is now dissolved, and the mission is derailed. How does the mission get derailed? Because now, Adam and Eve, right, our first parents, they're constructing their own mission. So rather than living in sync with the mission that God calls them to, they have a better idea, and they're on their own mission to live life as they want. Well, since God created the universe to kind of sync up with his mission and what he desires, they're now living out of whack, and they're getting lots of bumps and bruises along the way. 
So in Act 2, there is no more community. The mission's been derailed. The partnership's been dissolved. And everything's a mess. Well, God's not content to let that be the end of the story. So God makes promises. And God made, you know, the promise section of the Bible is huge. It kind of runs from like Genesis 3 all the way to the end of Malachi. I mean, hundreds of pages. Maybe some of you have read it. And if you haven't, you need to. Lots of weird stuff in there, right? Lots of animals getting cut up. Lots of blood. Lots of evil. Lots of good. Lots of crazy stuff happening. Well, through all of that promise section, God keeps saying, I'm not content to let your will be done because your will leads only to destruction and death. My will will be done. Uh, what I desire is my intention will be fulfilled and I'm going to bring about again community, partnership, and my mission will be completed. But by the time you come to the end of that third act, you discover that if left to ourselves, we're never able to do it. In fact, part of what you learn in those hundreds of pages of people trying to live out God's promise and mission all by themselves, it falls short every single time because they're trying to do it with human effort. They're trying to do it with their own wisdom. And maybe in that second and third act, we find something that we still wrestle with and we still fail at today. It goes something like this. Once we recognize and become aware of our own sin, instinctively, we make two mistakes. And you think to yourself, if you don't make these same two mistakes, as soon as you become aware of your sin, either a particular one or in general, just like as you read in the first three, two act, second two, three, two acts of the story, what do you discover? The first thing you do is self-help, self-improvement. As soon as you're aware of something you've done wrong, you want to take matters into your own hands, you want to try harder, a little self-help, turn over a new leaf, you're going to make a change. Yeah, how long does that last? Yeah, most of us have broken our New Year's resolutions if you made it. Many of you have given up making them, right? Because you break them by the middle of January. You certainly break them by the end of February. And so, yeah, self-help isn't going to work. Turning over a new leaf, there aren't that many trees that have enough leaves on that we're going to need. The second mistake we instinctively make, not just self-help, deceit. We pretend that we didn't mess up. We pretend that we didn't screw up. We see that all the way back when the first sin was committed in Act 2. What do Adam and Eve do? Well, first they try to improve themselves. They make fig leaves. And then they deceive themselves and try to deceive God. You can't deceive God. Instinctively, we make two mistakes, self-help and deceit. And all that big promise section of the Old Testament says, self-help doesn't really help. You can't deceive God because he's omniscient and knows all things. So by the time you come to the end of the third act, it's kind of a sad, sad story. We're in trouble. And unless God does something, it's not going to get done. Well, thank God there's a fourth act, and the fourth act is that God appears. God shows up. That's the Jesus act, right? We celebrate Jesus coming at Christmas, the incarnation, God becoming a human being. Um, do you ever wonder, what does God do, or what would God do when he showed up? You ever wonder that? Like, you know, if you just kind of go with the story, maybe you don't know the story real well, what would God do if he showed up to a world that had rejected him and tried self-help and deceit, what would he do? Well, we got a couple verses that actually show you what he did. I think we got a, next one. Next slide, there we are. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and what's he doing? Proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them 
because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That's what he did. When God appears, he's trying to heal diseases. He's restoring relationship. He's bringing back community. He's bringing back health. He's restoring the mission as he inaugurates the mission. And not just that, he calls us into partnership again. Well, in the next act, in Acts 5, this is the act that we live in. That's the act where he sends us. And in the slide, you see that that's where we are. We're not in the first or second or third or even fourth act. We're in the fifth act where God sends us. So you hear us often say, God does not call us to sit and soak. God's mission to us is not to make our lives as comfortable as we can. God doesn't call us to accumulate as much stuff as we can. God doesn't call us to become as successful as we can. God doesn't call us to any of that. God calls us to the mission of continuing what Jesus started. Now, we're not able to end the story. God will end the story. And the last act is where God restores everything. And once again, there is community. Once again, the mission is complete and it's established. And once again, there is partnership forever. So who are we as a church? We're a church, we're a community that believes that the Bible is a story, but it's not just a story. We believe the Bible is God's story. And miraculously and graciously, he's included us in his story. That's amazing, isn't it? God's story. That's what the Bible is. Jump into it. Read it. Find out what's going on. Well, who, are, who else are we as a church? Well, here's another thing that makes us a little distinct from others. We seek to mind our A, C's, and P's. And some of you are thinking, you all don't even know how to spell there. I'm not sure I want to be part of that community. Why do we don't know how to? No, no, no. A, C's, and P's. We need to mind our A, C's, and P's. Now, what in the world are A, C's, and P's? A, C's, and P's are absolutes, convictions, and preferences. Now, you may be saying, well, why do we need to know that? I'll tell you why. Because we say things like this. I believe that Jesus is the point and the purpose of God's story. We also say, I believe the Phillies are going to win the World Series this year. That's what I did when I thought of that. (laughs) Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of hoping they're 500 at the end of the year, right? I believe Starbucks makes the best coffee. Some of you are thinking, Calvary's coffee's better. Yeah, because you're cheap. It's for free. I know what you're thinking. <laughs> well, how do those beliefs that we have get prioritized? Well, A, C's, and P's can kind of help us with the prioritization. So, for example, A's, absolutes, right? Absolutes are things that are clear in the Bible and things that are all over the Bible. We did a series back in the fall on some of the absolutes. We called the series, I Believe. I think you can still download those or you can listen to those on our website. In that series, we talked about what we believe about the Bible, what we believe about God, what we believe about Jesus, what we believe as human beings. What do we believe about different aspects of salvation? Those are the absolutes, things that are clear, things that are regularly taught, and things that Christians believe across denominational lines and throughout history. So there are a number of absolutes that we hold to as a church. We believe that there is a God, and he made all that exists. We believe that Jesus is God, who became a human being, to live the life we should have lived but didn't, die the death we deserve to die, and then gives us all of the results of his life, his death, and his resurrection. 
We believe that God calls us to continue what Jesus started. They're all absolutes. That's who we are. But life isn't just composed of absolutes. They're also convictions. Convictions. Now, we define convictions as human con constructs, human buildings using biblical data. So uh, think of it this way. Suppose we had delivered to your house um, a Home Depot truckload of stuff. You know, there, were, there was lumber on there, some plywood on there, nails on there, roofing stuff on there. I'm running out of stuff that I know about building, right? Uh, well, nails, screws, whatever. It all gets delivered to your house. Um, here's the interesting thing. Based on your situation, your experience, your expertise, your family need, you would construct something different than the person sitting next to you. I would just have a big bonfire and burn it and enjoy it that evening. Uh, but you, you may construct a deck around your house. Maybe you'd build a big dog house and get a dog. Maybe you'd build a, an in-law suite and then ship it to Canada. Uh, <laughs> something like that, right? So we would all build something different, but we're using the same materials, right? That's what convictions are. Convictions are we take the data, we take information from the Bible, but then we apply our knowledge, our experience, our thought and need to it, and we build something, but other people can take the same materials with different needs, different expertise and context, and they build something different. So what are some convictions that Christians have built? Oh, here are some. Different, in case you haven't noticed, different groups of Christians baptize differently. Did you ever notice that? Like some communities, Christian communities, they baptize babies. You think, well, they wet the baby in the pool? They don't? No, no, no. If you baptize babies, usually you only use a little bit of water. You drop a little, couple drops of water on the baby's head, right? Other people, right, they dunk adults, right? They like to put them under. And depending on, you know, how wretched of a life you lived, you have to go under longer and longer, right? Some of you should still be under. Uh, and so how much water? Who gets baptized? Well, there are different beliefs, different convictions. It's not an absolute. See, here's the point. When you build something with the lumber that was delivered to you from Home Depot, you use some of it, and some of that lumber becomes absolutely essential in the process. But you leave a lot of the materials on the truck and you send it back. That's how convictions work. When we build convictions... We use some biblical material very carefully. It is essential to the plan, but we leave a lot of other biblical stuff on the truck. There's a lot of other things the Bible says that get stuck on the truck. Well, we don't need that. It doesn't fit the building we're building. That's how convictions work. Now, here's the point when it comes to convictions. You need convictions, right? You need convictions. I need convictions. You need I'm not kind of slamming convictions. We as a church need convictions. We need to make decisions about those things. But convictions are secondary. Absolutes are primary. See how that works? Convictions are secondary. Absolutes are primary. Here's a way to look at it if you're familiar with the Gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The Pharisees screwed up their use of convictions. Here's what the Pharisees did. They took their list of convictions. Look at that. I, my head went off the screen. <laughs> I, I should give them a warning like when I'm going up and down. Sorry. I'm not going to tell them. I'll see if they can keep up. <laughs> the Pharisees took their convictions, but then measured other Christians' spiritual maturity by their convictions. You know what Jesus says? No, 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 no. 
you're crossing the line. You're crossing the line. You are not to develop your convictions and measure someone else's maturity by them. Develop convictions and live by them. But be willing to negotiate and debate and argue about your convictions because as we go through life, our convictions may change and probably should change a little bit. Now, we as a church have to have some convictions. You have to make decisions. But we hold our convictions much more loosely than we hold the absolutes. Oh, but there's another circle. There are also preferences, right? Now, what are preferences? They're things you like. They're things you like. So some of you say things like this. I like to come to church dressed however I want to be dressed. If I'm going to wear sweatpants and sneaks, I want to wear sweatpants and sneaks. If I want to come in a t-shirt, I want to come in a t-shirt. Even in the summer, if I want to wear flip-flops and cargo shorts, I want to wear flip-flops and cargo shorts. We say, you're welcome to come. Others of you say, well, if you go to church and you're going to respect God, you should wear your best. Well, that's your preference, right? Hey, you prefer this. Others of you say, well, I like blue is my favorite color. So I wish every week you had different shades of blue in the auditorium. Well, some people, they don't prefer blue. They may prefer red or orange, as gross as that is, right? Uh, and so preferences are kind of just based on things you like. So some preference issues go like this. We should never use cultural songs in the service like that Darius Rucker song. Okay, well, that's kind of a preference you have. That's great. We're glad you shared that. Okay, have a nice life. Um, um, Others of you say, no, no, no. We have preferences. Here's the point. When it comes to our preferences, we are to sacrifice our preferences to meet the preferences of others. Now, that doesn't mean you never get anything in your preference sweet spot. Maybe sometimes you get some stuff in your preference sweet spot and other people get some preference in their sweet spot. But here's kind of a weird, interesting, challenging, convicting thing when you read the Bible, particularly for those of you that are old. I'm, I'm not in that group. <laughs> and I'm quickly up. And you're saying, well, I'm not in that group either, right? You're 80 years old. I'm not in that group. You're talking about the older people in their 90s. Yeah. Uh, but here's the message of the Bible. I didn't make this up. You can read it. Here's how it goes. Younger people are to honor their elders. Isn't that right? And so we need to train our kids and train our young people in, in student ministries and family fusion. And we need to train them to honor their elders, to honor their parents, to honor those that are older. Is that right? That, that's how it works. And older people, elders, are to sacrifice for the younger. Isn't that the message of the Bible? Isn't that interesting how we get that wrong wrong? Or lots of older people, they want to honor the young people, and they want the younger people to sacrifice for them. What? The message of the Bible is younger honor the older, older sacrifice for the younger. You know, one of the things I love about Calvary Church is that what I just said to you has been our history from the beginning. We've got an older group that sacrifices for the younger group. That's why we do what we do, friends. And we've got a younger group that is in process and training of honoring the older group. That's how God intended it to be. I didn't say it's easy, and sometimes it's going to stink. But that's how it works. So here's our worship win, which is based off of those circles, absolutes, convictions, preferences. We have a worship win, right? In all of our service, when somebody shows up on the Calvary campus, here's what we want to have happen. We want each person to hear a relevant explanation of the gospel. 
So we're not going to use lots of Christianese. We're not going to run through the theological lexicon of big fancy words. It's going to be a message about the gospel that's true to scripture. And it's going to be in language and categories that people can understand. Maybe that's not always true, but that's our goal. But we also want everybody that shows up to experience a lived out application. We as a worship arts team, we can only do so much. We can work hard at the relevant explanation part. We're all off the bench in helping people experience the lived out application part. So that means when you park your car and you're walking through the building and you come across someone, you're on. Your job is to help them experience a lived out application of the gospel. When, somebody, when you walk in and somebody's, look at it, when somebody's sitting in your seat, you need to help them experience a lived out application by not mumbling under your breath bad words as you're walking to find another seat. We need to help people experience a lived out application and hopefully we work hard at a relevant explanation. That's what we want to have happen. Oh, and by the way, that's not only something non-church people need. That's not only something young or novice church people need. That's something everybody needs. We all need this. I don't know about you. I regularly need to be reminded of what the gospel is, that it's a grace deal. It's not a Charles deal. And I need to be reminded it's not a self-help news. It's not self-help soft news. It's the hard news of what God's done and the amazing fact that he loves me and you so much that he sent his son to take care of our sin problem forever. I need a reminder of that regularly, and I need to experience that too. And so do you. And so this isn't, our worship win isn't just something we do for visitors. We need this regularly. Non-Christians and Christians, followers of Jesus and non-followers of Jesus, we all need the same thing. We need to hear a relevant explanation of the gospel on a regular basis, and we need to experience that gospel lived out in relationship with other people and that is what it means to continue what Jesus started. You see, if we're going to be serious about living in Act 5 that God sends us, we've got to have a prioritized belief structure that allows us to do that. Because here's the tension. The cultural pressure on us will be to diminish the absolute and conviction circles and have everything be a preference. Isn't that the pressure from our culture? Everything should be a preference. Yeah, you believe Jesus, somebody else believes Buddha, somebody believes Mahan. Yeah, so it's just your preference. No, no, no. There are absolutes, convictions, and preferences. But the pressure from culture will be to only have preferences and to reduce or eliminate absolutes and convictions. The religious pressure, and some of you feel this, right? Some of you maybe you know, are visiting from churches or used to go to church or whatever. The religious pressure is to have the absolute circle be the whole circle where the Bible speaks on every issue and you need to do things exactly as they did in the Bible. No, we do things, we, we continue what Jesus started, but it has to be different because our context and culture is different. So we believe in absolutes, we believe in convictions, we believe in preferences, and we populate them as we live in community. And you know what that worship arts or what, what that worship wins mean? what worship win means? You're not going to get what you want all the time. It's not going to be in your preference sweet spot. Just like when you're having a big family dinner and you invite everybody over, do you get to choose every course and everything you want? I mean, I go to family dinner, I'm lucky if I get one thing that I want, right? It's usually in the dessert tray, yeah. <laughs> well, it's kind of like that. We're a big family, um, 
And you've heard me say this before, and I mean it, and I see many of you do it, and I get goosebumps when I say it. I know when some music's being played, which is a big preference problem for some, when some music's being played that may not be in your preference sweet spot, it may be far removed from your preference. It may be in another country from your preference sweet spot. But I see some of you look around, and when you see somebody else worshiping because that music is in their preference sweet spot, you smile. You say that's part of what it means to be part of a community and part of what it means to be a family. And sometimes the music's going to be in your sweet spot, or maybe the message is going to be in your sweet spot, or, and it's not going to be in somebody else's. That's what it means to be family. That's what it means to be brother and sister. Now, here's how it works. In the absolutes, we agree. In the convictions, we give space and freedom. In the preferences, we sacrifice for others. That's how it works. Here's the problem. If everything's a preference, you don't know when to sacrifice and there's no hill you ever die on. If everything's an absolute, you die on every hill and you have no friends. Well, but if you have a prioritized belief structure, you know when to sacrifice. You know when to debate and love somebody even when you disagree. And you know what hills you die on. That's what a prioritized theology does. That's what we believe at Calvary Church. We try to mind our A's, our C's, and our P's. We may not do that perfectly, but here's what that looks like. We have people at Calvary Church that are members of the NRA. And we have people at Calvary Church that, thinks, that think all guns should be illegal. We have people at Calvary Church that voted Republican. And we have people at Calvary Church that voted Democrat. We have people at Calvary Church that believe you should baptize babies and use a little bit of water. And we have, believe, we have people at Calvary Church that think... You need to get adults really wet because that's more embarrassing to do it. And you get your hair clean that way. We have people at Calvary Church that think theology should look more like this or theology should look more like that. Yeah, but you know what? We're a community not built on preferences. We're a community not built on convictions. We're a community built on the absolutes of the Bible and the gospel. The Jesus flag flies at the top of the pole. So if you want a community that's built on your preferences, or you want a community where everybody agrees with your little conviction package, Calvary Church is not for you. But if you believe absolutes are hills you die on, convictions are things you believe other Christians, good people may believe differently, you still need to love them and care for them, and you believe that occasionally you have to sacrifice your preferences for somebody else, welcome to Calvary Church. We hope you stay. Absolutes, convictions, preferences. Well, it's 9.54, and some of you are thinking, you think he's done? <laughs> no, 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 no. If I have a few minutes, I'm going to use it. Well, there is one more thing I want to say. So who are we as a church? Here are three things I wanted to remind you of. Number one, we're a community that believes the Bible's a story, but not just the story. It's God's story. We try to mind our absolutes, convictions, and preferences. And we take seriously our responsibility to pass the baton. Now, what in the world does that mean? One of the first verses I memorized as a Christian, I guess I had been a Christian less than a year, and somebody told me I should memorize this verse, which is why when I quote it, I often say it incorrectly, built on the NIV, because I didn't memorize the NIV. But here's 2 Timothy 2.2, and I'll read it in case you're looking at the NIV. You won't say, oh, Charles screwed up again. Paul's writing to Timothy, and here's what he says. 
Timothy, the things you heard from me, <laughs> I'm saying, the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these things to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Notice in that verse there are four legs in that relay, right? I'm going to stand up. I'll go rest. <laughs> Paul starts the race, right? I have the baton. Timothy, I passed it to you, right? The things you heard from me. Paul to Timothy. Timothy, you need to take these things and pass them to reliable people. But you reliable people, you're not the end of the race. The reliable people need to hand the baton to others. See how that works? Just like a relay race. You know, a relay race is very different than an open race. In an open race, the gun sounds, all the runners take off, and the first one across the finish line wins. Oh, in a relay race, there's all kinds of rules. You get disqualified all the time. It works like this. In a relay race, every leg must run well, and you must pass the baton. So if you have four runners, and you run, and you run really, really fast, and you cross the finish line first, but you lost the baton somewhere in the second leg, you're disqualified, and you lose. If you pass the baton meticulously, but you come in an hour and a half later after the winning team, you lose. You see, a relay race is complicated, right? You need to run well, your stretch of the race, and you need to pass the baton. Just like the Bible. Paul says, uh, Timothy, I ran, and I tried to run well, and I passed the baton to you. In fact, when... Paul writes 2 Timothy, he knows his leg of the race is just about over. He says, Timothy, uh, my time is short. I'm checking out soon. I've run, tried to run well. I passed the gospel baton to you, Timothy. Now it's your time to run. You better run well, and you better pass the baton. So Timothy finds some reliable people, run well, and put the baton in their hands so that when you leave like I'm leaving, they then have the baton and it's time for them to run. And you reliable folks, you take the baton and you pass it to others also so they get to run their leg at a race. Um, I have three chairs up here. Not because I'm bringing two people up. You're getting nervous, right? You're thinking, we only have three minutes left, Charles, and you have two chairs. If you're interviewing people, I'm leaving. No, the chairs aren't up here for interview. Chairs are up here to uh, talk about passing the baton. The middle chair is, uh, is my chair. Actually, not really my chair, but it's my chair this morning. And it's your chair. I'm not sure if you realize this. Uh, if not, I want to remind you. When you came to Calvary Church today or when you came the first time or whenever you've come since then, there was a chair supplied for you. Isn't that right? You had a chair this morning. Um, Somebody provided that chair for you. That chair just didn't show up. Somebody provided that chair. Somebody provided the chair and somebody invited you to come and put your butt in it. Somebody befriended you and brought you. Somebody said you should come. The chair that was there when you came this morning or whenever you came to Calvary Church for the first or the hundredth time, there was a chair for you and that chair was provided for you. Those that provided that chair represented by the chair on my right. 
Calvary Church's history isn't as long as some churches, but it goes all the way back to 1950. And ever since 1950, people that filled the chair to the right made sacrifices in their preferences, with their money, with their time, and they took the courageous step to build relationships with people and invite them to sit in the middle chair. Some of you have done that. Some of you have been part of that history. Well done. In fact, I was thinking this morning as I was at home, there's a line of chairs represented on my right from this chair all the way back to Jesus. And not one seat was empty or you and I wouldn't be here. That's amazing, isn't it? There have been chair after chair after all the way back to Jesus. Jesus came. He called 12 guys to sit in that chair, and they were to call others. And eventually Paul was there, and Paul had Timothy, and Timothy had reliable people. Reliable people had others. Eventually came somebody at Calvary Church, and they filled a chair on the right, and they provided a chair for you with their time, their money, their prayers, their invitation, and now you got your butt in the middle chair. There are lots of two-chair churches in this world, friend. You can ride around Philadelphia, as I often do, and you can see... Churches that were once vibrant, that are now restaurants. Churches that are apartment buildings. Churches that are dilapidated and scheduled to be torn down. Now look, I don't know all the particulars of that history, but I do know this. There are a lot of two-chair churches around. There are also a lot of good news churches. Um, You know, there may be good news. Maybe it's a church plant, so there isn't a chair. You know, the church kind of got started, but there's a chair to your right, and now we're in the middle chair. Oh, yeah. There's a chair on my left. Forget about this chair. Look around at the chairs near you. Look around. Every empty chair is represented by the chair on my left. They're the chairs that aren't filled yet. Somebody provided a chair for you. Ball's on our court, guys. It's our job to run well and provide a chair for somebody on my left. That's not only true in Quakertown, it's true for you guys up there. It's true for us right here. You know, by sending 300 people to Quakertown to start that site, that's exciting. That left 300 empty chairs here, so there are a little few more chairs on my left. That means we got work to do, right? And for all of you folks in Quakertown, we'll just keep buying chairs up there. You got a whole big room to fill, so you got a lot of chairs. But here's the point. Jesus came on a mission, and the mission can be pictured as a relay race. Jesus passed the baton to his 12 apostles, and they passed it to people like Timothy, and they passed it to reliable people, and they passed it to others also. And somewhere down that road, they passed it to somebody on your right and somebody on my right, the person that invited you, the person that sacrificed for you, the people that prayed for you, they provided a chair for you. Remember, the point isn't just to run well, and the point isn't just to pass the baton. It's to run well and pass the baton. I love Calvary Church because it's a three-chair church. We've got a history that I'm proud to know and to tell. We've got a community that's running well. We could run a little better, but we're running pretty well. And we're a community that continually looks to the chair on our left and asks, you know what? How can we fill that chair? What sacrifices do we have to make with our money? What sacrifices do we have to make in our time, with our energy, with our preferences? 
what sacrifices do we have to make to fill the chair to my left? And just like there's a long line of chairs to my right, let's hopefully fill not just the chair to our immediate left, but all the chairs in the generations that follow. I'm getting up. <laughs> I'm not sure if the simple little introduction to Calvary Church kind of said, I could be part of a community like that. Charles, thanks for that reminder. Thank or maybe you're thinking, well, one thing's for sure, I know I don't belong there. Well, at least we're all starting off on the knowing each other. Oh, yeah, but we don't know you well yet. Remember your assignment? You've heard just a 30-minute introduction or reintroduction of who we are as a community. We're a church that believes the Bible's a story, not a collection of disconnected bits. It's not primarily our story. It's God's story. And the amazing thing is, he included you in his story. We try to mind our absolutes, convictions, and preferences. Knowing what hills we'll die on, knowing what hills we need to give space and freedom in, and knowing what hills we need to sacrifice on so other people can have things in their sweet spot. And we're a community that takes seriously running well and passing the baton. If that sounds like a community you'd want to be part of or you know some people that need to be part of, invite them. Share the story with them. In fact, we sometimes say it like this. Just bless them. Bless them. Begin with prayer and pray for them. Listen as you ask questions. Eat with them. Serve them. And part of that service is loving them and share an appropriate part of your story. You know, if we do that, the chair on our left is going to be filled. And before you know it, we're going to have to do another site. What excitement is that going to be? Let's stand and pray. Father, we give you thanks that you've told us your story. You've told us what's important to you and what's secondary to you. Lord, help us to be continually amazed that you include us in your story. Help us, Lord, to be able to figure out what hills we die on and what hills we sacrifice on. And help us to run well by the grace and strength you give. And help us to never forget. People made sacrifices for the chairs we sit in. And now it's our turn to run well and prepare a seat for those that will come after us. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.